0: Episode of First Things in the Morning. A bit late, I know. I'm a terrible procrastinator. There's not much else I can say. Um, I don't even have an excuse. Let's dive right into the episode, which is going to be another entry into the Go Down in History series. To bring some structure into this subjectless podcast, we have different series going, so everyone knows what kind of content an episode will have. To learn more about the different series, check the podcast description Go Down in History is, obviously, about history. And for today's episode, we are going back almost 100 years, to 1920, while my roommate upstairs walks very loudly. Thank you, roommate. Okay, she stopped. Uh, My history teacher used to say that people will look back upon our current time as a time of terrorism and environmentalism. With the development of automatic weapons, it is very easy to do some great damage. But as we already learned from the Emma Goldman episode, That doesn't mean that terrorist attacks weren't a thing in the early 20th century. In 1920, Wall Street, yes, THE Wall Street in New York, fell victim to one such terrorist attack. But to this day, no one has claimed the attack, which is strange. If you don't claim a terrorist attack, it won't do anything for your cause. Um, Either you want to create change or fear, and if no one knows who did it, they aren't going to be scared of you. So not claiming a terrorist attack seems to go against everything a terrorist attack is for. Today we are going to take a look at what exactly happened and the theories of who did it. Up until now, we've kept everything pretty factual, but I think it's fun to just go over some of the speculations as well and maybe see what we think is the most likely scenario. Let's set the scene. It's September 16th, 1920. The corner of Wall and Broad Street, the home of the headquarters of GP Morgan & Co, is buzzing with activity. Morgan Jr. is a banker and his company was the biggest in the post-World War I uh, corporate finance world. The bank had a lot of critics, because not only did they finance most of the First World War, they also made a lot of money off it. During the World War, Morgan & Co had made loans of 500 million USD to Russia and 12 million to France in the UK. Then in the post-war world, the bank managed Germany's reparation payments, as determined in the Treaty of Versailles. Most of the money that was loaned was spent on things like the iron industry for weapons. Thing was, Morgan owned most of the companies dealing in the important in wartime industries. So the loans he gave out would be spent on his companies, and then the loans would also have to be paid back with interest to him. (laughs) And that wasn't the only way he made money off of the war. Because the Allies, the US government, the UK, etc. Needed money for ammunition and weaponry. They started selling all the stocks they held in American companies to make money. Which Morgan and Co. quickly all bought. They now owned an absurd amount of the entire US market. Which always is a good idea. And critics weren't a fan of this strategy. Because making money off the war isn't exactly a moral thing to do, especially not in the eyes of the anti-capitalist, we'll come back later, so remember all this. Across the street from Morgans was an essay office. For those who don't know what that is, like me, essay offices test the purity and test the worth of various precious metals. If you have some gold, for instance, and you want to know what its worth is, you go to an essays office. Another place where a lot of gold was going through would be next door, where the US sub-treasury was located. Besides those, there were countless other important companies located on that block. Stockbrokers, bank clerks and messengers were doing their day-to-day business, so no one really noticed the abandoned cart parked up on the side of the road. Until, just after the church had stopped ringing for noon, it exploded with the force of a hundred pounds. 50 kilograms of dynamite. The sound alone was deafening, and the blast took down everything around it, from people to windows. A streetcar a block over was blown off its wheels. People who were closer to the wagon went up in human-shaped fireballs. The horse who had drawn the card, uh, well, he also very much didn't make it. His hooves were found streets over in all four directions. And according to the Smithsonian, uh, trigger warning, because this is kind of disturbing, a woman's head was found stuck to the wall of a building, with the hat still on. And I know a person died, and that's terrible, but also, what kind of magic hat was that? Imagine having a head that comes off your body before your hat comes off your head. The streets were filled with smoke. A mushroom-shaped yellowish cloud of smoke rose to the height of about 100 feet, 30 meters. The car did not only contain dynamite, it was also filled with 500 pounds, about 250 kilograms, of sash weights. Now, I had to look up what those are, but basically they are small iron cylinders that are used in construction. And as you might expect, they make pretty good shrapnel. People who didn't burn got caught in a rain of tiny pieces of blown apart metal. And then there was the glass. Pretty much every window in the nearby streets blew out causing the people on the streets, as well as those inside the buildings, to be caught in cascading glass shards from everywhere. Considering all of that, it is surprising only about 40 people died in and after the attack. But of course, there were hundreds of people who were injured. About 2,000 police officers and Red Cross workers swarmed the scene to help survivors, and look for evidence and guard the scene. Clean-up efforts began pretty much instantly, and most of the debris was cleared away within 24 hours. As you can imagine, this might have cleaned up some very valuable evidence that we will now never know about. At first, people expected it to have been a bomb that was dropped from the sky, as that piece of strategy had just been introduced in the previous war. But it didn't take long to determine that a blast had come from the red, now horseless, cart. So who did it? Like I said, no one ever claimed the attack. But let's first take a look at the leads the police followed upon, uh, but that never led to any convictions. After realizing that sash weights has been used to optimize the explosion for maximum damage, the police interviewed every sash weight maker and dealer in the area. And they also visited about 500 staples, looking for a place where this bomb could have been assembled. It would be pretty hard to load up 100 pounds of dynamite and 500 pounds of shrapnel with the car just parked up in the street for everyone to see. But the police came up empty-handed, and never found out where the shrapnel was from and where the bomb was assembled. An early suspect was Edwin P. Fisher, who was a local lawyer and tennis champion. Now, what you need to know about Fisher is that he was also known as a bit of a mentally unstable person, who had been checked into mental hospitals multiple times. He had predicted an explosion on Wall Street several times, and... I found out that the New York Times actually has a lot of their pre-computer-era articles scanned in. So I found an article from September 21st, 1920, with the headline, Asylum for Bomb Profit, which reports on the police investigation into Fisher. At the time of the bombing, Fisher had been in Canada, but he had sent multiple postcards to friends and family, warning them to stay away from Wall Street mid-September, as a disastrous explosion was going to occur. He got interviewed by the police, who would rather like to know how he knew about the event before it happened. But the whole conversation was just red flags. First of all, when he was transferred from Canada to New York, he was wearing three suits. Not a three-piece suit, just three suits on top of each other. He was wearing two business suits on top and a tennis suit underneath instead of normal undergarments. Quoting from the article, Fisher explained that this arrangement had several advantages. First, he said, the more clothes one wore, the greater the protection from the heat in summertime. Second, he was ready for a tennis match at all times, as all he had to do to appear in tennis costume was to shed his two outer suits. And third, when he wanted a change of outer raiment, all that was necessary was to shift the order of the two woolen suits. <laughs> and I'm telling you this both because it gives a good um, picture of his character, but also because it just made me laugh. It's... sound reasoning for a crazy person. He also rambled through most of the interview, although sometimes he would suddenly talk in surprising clarity. The article states, After the police officials had failed to get anything definite out of Fisher, he was taken to the district attorney's office. In reply to a question by district attorney Swan, he said, I got it out of the air from God. If you can get information that way, Why can't you find out who committed this crime? asked Mr. Swan. Oh, I can do that, replied Fisher quickly. I can force a hunch. That will take time. It will have to uh, come to me. It didn't take long for police to conclude that Fisher's prophecy was probably just coincidence, because he did not seem to have any real information or answers on the bombing. He was checked into a mental hospital again shortly after. There was one more lead, again in the form of a letter. It led to a group of suspects that the police was very willing to blame, one way or the other. And that group was the anti-capitalist anarchists and communists. On September 17th, one day after the bombing, postal workers found a stack of flyers. They had been dropped off in the financial district post boxes just minutes before the explosion. The flyer read, Remember, we will not tolerate any longer. Free the political prisoners or it will be sure death for all of you. It was signed by the American anarchist fighters. The latter had the same kind of vibe as the ones that had been circulated before a series of bomb attacks in several US cities in the year before. Those bombs had been credited to a group that went by the name of Gellianists, which was a group of Italian anti-government anarchists led by the fierce Luigi Galliani. He was not only a great speaker, but also somewhat of a wizard with explosives. Galliani had been deported the previous year, but the Wall Street bomb had a lot in common with Galliani's bombs, which also used to contain uh, makeshift shrapnel. But Galliani had been deported back to Italy, along with many of his comrades, such as Peter Angelo, another anarchist, who had been most likely involved in the bombings in 1990 as well. Angelo did keep contact with his friends in the U.S. though, so it could still have been the Gallianis, in a kind of long-distance relationship with their comrades overseas, who orchestrated the attack and followed Galliani's um, instructions on how to make a bomb as well as he did. But the latter didn't outright claim the attack. Still, the authorities tried to find a printer who had made the flyer, investigating every printer up and down the East Coast but they did not have any success. So there weren't the biggest leads the police had without anything coming from it. After that, there were no more leads, but the police were very ready to blame the bombings on the Reds. I would like to point out that the first Red scare was going on around this time, meaning that everyone was super scared of the lefties of the extreme kind. And this was a view that was very much pushed by the government as well. But to be fair, as we discovered in the Emma Goldman episode, Uh, some of the extreme left-wing people were to be feared in that time. And if I was an angry communist, or, well, if I was an angry communist with bad intentions, the absolute center of capitalism that is Wall Street would be a good target. Besides, this group had been blamed, in most cases justifiably so, for dozens of bombings in the past 20 years. So it isn't an insane thing to assume that they did this bombing as well. But why did they never claim it? It was also thought that the bombing had been maybe not necessarily a terrorist attack as much as an assassination attempt on G.P. Morgan Jr. himself, the man who we talked about in the beginning. In the eyes of any self-respecting pro-violence communist, he would probably be the first one you would want to get rid of. He had made a lot of money on one of the worst wars the world had seen up until that point. But Morgan wasn't in town the day of the incident. Hell, he wasn't even on the continent. He was on one of his frequent trips to Europe. So either the terrorists were stupid and they didn't check his schedule, or he wasn't the target. Although it is worth mentioning that among the victims were Morgan Jr.'s son and his chief clerk, William Joyce, who were both very important people to Morgan. The last theory was that the sub-treasury was the target. Allegedly, about 900 million US dollars in gold bars was being moved from that location that day. And that's an insane amount of gold, even when you account for inflation. But as far as sources state, the gold was never touched or attempted to be taken in the chaos that followed the explosion. So either the gold wasn't a target either, or the heist had failed terribly. In the end, it's most logical to assume that it was just a symbolic attack on capitalism, by anarchists or communists. Although to this day it has never been proven and no real new leads have surfaced in the years after the attack. The stock markets and the banks opened the next day so if it was meant to hurt capitalism it sadly didn't even succeed in that. It went down in history as the biggest terrorist attack on U.S. soil until the Oklahoma City bombings in 1995 took that title. I'm not sure if this is an event that Americans learn about in school and just everyday society, but I have never heard of it. And that concludes today's story, I'm afraid. If you liked the episode, or perhaps you like even the entire podcast, please rate and review it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. If you want to get into contact with me, to suggest a topic, or just to say hi, you can do so through Twitter, at In the Morning Pod, or by emailing me at firstthingspod at gmail.com. That being said, I wish you a wonderful day and see you back hopefully at the end of this week. Bye.